Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jettikin. <laughs> Let's start off the show by thanking our Patreon contributors. This week, we had Selena, Jada, Maria, Alexandra, Cody, Hans, Cherish, Sarah, Alicia, Amelia, Heather, Christy, Ashley, Amber, Joanna, Alice, Anna, Mags, Tiffany, L, Nellie, Linda, Karen, Selena, Vera, Charlene, Nicole, Mimi, and Catherine. Thanks, guys. Thank you guys so much. I got excited when I heard Nellie. You like that name, Nellie. I do, because I love Little House on the Prairie. Yeah. And I love Nellie Olson, like a premier child bitch. Right. Oh, she's <laughs> the one with the sausage curls. Absolutely. Yeah. The curls I had to have. Did you? Oh, my God. I was obsessed with getting banana curls or whatever they're called. Yeah. Like those huge rings. Yeah. I wanted them so bad. Right. Uh, I would get my grandmother to to put roll, hot rollers in my <laughs> try to make them. But my hair was like so, my hair is so flat and thin. Right, right. It just was impossible. We should try it again now that you're an adult. I, maybe I should get like, um, what's it called? Extensions? Yeah. I should, I, what if I just walked around with fucking banana curls? I, that would be insane. I, I, <laughs> I was actually like Baby Jane too. She yeah, had them, yeah. But it would be even more deranged if you walked around with banana curls, but you didn't change anything else about your personal right. style. I'm just in like gym wear yeah, with banana curls. Yeah. <laughs> Like it wasn't like a look. Yeah, I wasn't doing the whole thing. It I didn't was, have like a pinafore on. Right. Literally just banana curls and like a black turtleneck dress. Or right. <laughs> anyway, so I was looking for a case to do. It, I literally went down to the wire with this one. I don't know why. I think I had an idea and then I was just like, oh, I don't know, like if I'm going to have enough time. What's going on with this this week, Debbie? I don't know. Both of us. And then I was like trying to think like what we had done the past few weeks and contrast that. So you know how it is. Yeah. When you wait to the last minute, you just start fucking yourself over. So I thought, oh, you know, we haven't done a music versus reality in a while. No, we so haven't. I thought that I would look into that and see if anything caught my eye. Now, I Googled songs that were based on real crimes, and then I saw a song by The Killers. Do you like this band? Uh, I never like bought any of their albums. Yeah, I mean, I, I know a few of their I things. Don't, like, I know who they are. Yeah, I know some of their songs. Well, they have a song called Jenny Was a Friend of Mine. I, yes. Do you know this song? I know of this song because I know it's based on a true crime. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> You got that right. Yay. Now, I listened to this song, uh, and it's got a very like 80s new wave sound to it. They're kind of like, you can tell they like 80s Yeah, music. they're definitely influenced by that. Now, this song is on their 2004 album called Hot Fuzz. Oh, that was their debut. Was that their debut album? Yeah, that has like okay. Mr. Brightside right. on it. I think this was, like, this was like not originally supposed to be a single, but then it became really popular. Now, at... I Sorry, where was I? Uh, so this song is based on the infamous preppy murder case that happened in the summer of 1986 in New York City. Now, I was a kid in New York City at this time, and this story was a huge fucking deal and was literally on the cover of those New York City tabloid newspapers pretty much every day for like two fucking years. Like it was tabloid, like New York Post was still in existence back then, and they still had their fucking headlines. But there's also two other um, tabloid headlines in New York. I don't know if people know this. And they, so it was just like nonstop uh, fucking headlines about this case. It's also the basis for a classic TV movie starring William Baldwin and Lara Flynn Boyle that came out in 1989. Now, this case is also significant because it was sort of the epitome of a trial where the defense really goes all in on slut shaming the victim. Um, and they did it in this just like really vile way where it became pretty much the story. Now we all hate this. Yes. Uh, <laughs> 
you have to hate this. Please hate this. It's it fucking sucks. And yeah. it's so infuriating. Absolutely. Uh, we'll get into this obviously more later. Now, my main sources for this were old newspapers. I went on Murderpedia. Like there's a ton of articles online. But the main thing is um a five-part documentary series called The Preppy Murder. And that was released by I think it was like a joint release of Sundance Channel and AMC that came out last fall. So I'm going to talk a lot about stuff that's covered in this documentary, but there's a lot of interviews and stuff like that. So if you want more, you can go check that out. I think it's on Amazon Prime. Anyway, on to the case. In the early morning hours of August 26th, 1986, a woman named Pat Riley was riding her bike in Central Park as she did pretty much every morning. When she approached the area of the park called Panther Hill, she saw a car with blacked out windows driving the wrong way and sort of screeching out of the park, which obviously was really unusual for um, this time. It was like 6 a.m. in the morning, really early. She then saw a young woman's body under the tree and something immediately seemed wrong to her. The body just didn't seem right. It was positioned in like a very unnatural way. Now, this is 1986, so she had to literally bike to the nearest payphone to call 911. It's always scary when you're watching these things. You're like, you have to bike? Like, you should be able to call right there. Like, it's like weird to think of that. But yeah, she had to like haul ass on a bike to a payphone to call 911. Uh, In the documentary, she talks about going back to where the body was and waiting for the police to arrive so that the young woman didn't have to be alone. It was really sad. Like, she was deeply affected by finding this body obviously uh it she talks about how it literally was like this um like a some people described it as like a 9-11 moment meaning like it changed there there's like a before and after so this like she's like I never could ride bikes in the morning again it made me realize that I was being careless and not it wasn't brave it was being like careless like I could she couldn't feel safe anymore doing what leading her life the way she had led it Now, detectives get this call about a victim in the park that's described as DOA. They gather their team to go to the crime scene. Now, this area is right behind the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Um, They hear this information about the car. They shut down all the bridges and tunnels going in and out of the city. They're looking for this vehicle that has been seen pulling out like in a weird way by the cyclist. News outlets start hearing chatter now about a young woman being found dead in Central Park. They start showing up to the scene as well. A detective named Mike Sheehan is brought in, and he's the lead homicide detective at this point. He makes his way over there, and he pretty much begins examining the victim as soon as he arrives. She appears to be about 18 to 20 years old, and her skirt and shirt were hiked up, breast exposed. It appeared that she was the victim of some sort of violent sexual assault. Other odd things were tan lines that looked like bracelets and rings had been removed as well as earrings. So they started also thinking like, was this a robbery as well? Like what's going on here? She also had scratches and bruising pretty much like all over her body, as well as dark reddish brown marks that were around her neck. Now, the initial belief of detectives was that the young woman had been killed elsewhere and then her body was dumped in Central Park by that car that the cyclist saw um, speeding off. They were at this point, feeling really unsure that they would ever be able to find her killer, but they were finally able to tentatively ID her after they searched her and found some identification. They believed her to be 18-year-old Jennifer Levin. Around 9.30 a.m. that morning, police go to Stephen Levin's house, who is, um, I'm sorry, his apartment. That's Jennifer's dad. He lived in Soho at the time, and they're there to inform him about his daughter and basically confirm her identity. The press had also already found out about this. And when the police showed up, they were swarming (gasps) the Soho loft, like the downstairs area. I mean, I think at that time, they're just like listening to the police. Like, what are they called? The scanners. The scanners and like finding anything they can. So they show up at the Soho loft as well. So the dad's getting informed that his daughter has just been murdered as there's like swarms of press outside. Yeah. By the time the police show up, they're already outside. It sucks so bad. Now, another awful thing about this is um, family members obviously start gathering at this loft. At some point, someone realizes that Jennifer's mom, Ellen, had not been informed yet. Jesus. They weren't married at the time. They were divorced, and she was at work when this uh, story kind of started breaking. Now, Ellen gets a call from her dad at work. At that point, she is informed that Jennifer was dead. She immediately goes to Steve's loft, and while she's in the cab, she hears the news story that Jennifer Levin was the name of the girl found behind the Met. 
At this point, she's really confused. And in her head, she still thinks there was some kind of accident. So she gets to the loft. Um, she's obviously distraught, like regardless of the what, what happened. Her daughter is dead. She knows this. The press is outside. And there's like video footage of this. They're literally yelling at her. And she's like, my <gasps> daughter is dead. Like, leave me alone. Leave Seriously? me alone. Yeah. I mean, it's awful. She finally gets up to the loft, and that's when her mom tells her that Jennifer had, Jennifer had been strangled and that she was murdered. The mom, honestly, it's like watching this stuff as a kid, that was the thing that really stood out to me. Like, she was just so distraught, and like, she does go to like every court date and, and all of that stuff. She actually, of course, like Dominic Dunn makes a brief appearance. Right. And he was like, it's the last thing you have to do for your child. Go to the court every day, no matter how painful it is. So we, you see a lot of her, um, you saw a lot of her at that time. She wasn't like hiding out. She was there. Uh, so meanwhile, the investigation has continued. Jennifer's body is at the morgue now and she's just been brutalized. It's a very clear, it's very clear that this is a person who fought for her life. In addition to the strangulation marks, her teeth were loose. One of her eyes was bulging out of the socket, swollen and bruised. It appeared there had been some kind of blow to the face with an object or a fist. There were marks from her fingernails, like on her, um, the lower half of her face, like half moon, like dug in. And that was basically her attempting to pull down what whatever was strangling her. Right. Now, detectives began looking into Jennifer, who she was, what her life was like, and what she was doing right before she ended up dying in such a tragic way. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money, and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings with big cash back at hundreds of stores. Don't miss headliners like Canon, Fenty Beauty, and Dyson. I can't wait to shop for all of my summer fashion and beauty needs, and we'll definitely be checking out Ulta and Adidas. Rakuten really is the best way to shop. You can really save by stacking cash back on top of other deals. And during Big Give Week, the cash back is bigger than ever. It's the time to shop for everything you need for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Membership is free, and it's all happening May 6th to May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost on top of Big Give Week cashback rates, go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Rakuten is the shopping platform to save while shopping. 
By all accounts, family and friends, uh, Jennifer was a bubbly person, full of life, just a fun girl, and extremely popular in her friend group. Her parents had been recently divorced, as I mentioned earlier. Stephen moved into this Soho loft, and Jennifer moved in with him since she was starting school in the city. Ellen's mom eventually moves in to Tribeca soon after to be near her daughter. According to Ellen, Jen was a total city girl, and she got in with this exclusive sort of Upper East Side friend group very quickly. Now, detectives found out she had spent that night before she was found on the Upper East, Upper East Side with a friend named Alex Legata, and the story began to sort of fall into place. They found out that she was at a place called Dorian's Bar that night, which was a preppy hangout. By the way, this story is very 80s. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and there's going to be a lot more 80s things where you're just like, oh my God. I can already tell. When I was looking at pictures and like, footage like there's a lot of news footage in that documentary it's just like the most 80s story ever so it was the bar where like rich upper easter east siders would go and hang out even though they were all underage and this is also the end of the summer jen was a week away from going off to college as were most of the teens at dorian so this was kind of like a last hurrah before everyone kind of left for the summer now Jennifer is a young Jewish girl living in the much funkier Soho area, not the snooty Soho that we know today. It was way different then. Yeah. So she got in with this waspy rich kid crowd um, because she worked with a girl named Jessica Doyle at French Connection. Oh my God, Desi. (laughs) When I saw the French Connection, I was just like, oh my God, French Connection. So to this crowd, Jennifer was like, ooh, this like unique, like, free-spirited, kind of not-as-rich Jewish girl from the low, like the downtown area. Right. So she had this appeal to them because she was probably like just fun, more fun. <laughs> like yeah. they're all kind of these stuffy rich kids who go to prep school and like whatever. So she was like really popular. She began, she began hanging out with them all the time, especially on weekends when a lot of these kids were alone in their massive apartments while their parents were out of town at the Hamptons or wherever the fuck they go. Now, the media refers to this crowd as the gilded latchkey kids, and they were literally partying at Studio 54, every bar and club imaginable. In fact, these clubs actively would pursue these underage private school rich kids to come in and party. To boost their cachet? I guess, and they probably spent a fucking ton of money. Like, they were drinking and drugging and, like, partying really fucking hard. Now... Dorian's was considered the safe meeting spot. It was described as being what a shopping mall was to other teens their age, like in the suburbs. Just a side note, this uh, doc, they played an old PSA that I had completely forgotten about. The one that says, it's 10 p.m. Do you know where your (gasps) children are? (laughs) Desi, I loved that PSA when I was a kid. I had completely forgot about it. And I was like, "Uh, these kids are out partying. (laughs) Like. Oh, I have not. I have never forgotten about it's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? Because that, for some reason, I thought that was so scary when it would come on. Because it's like, well, you don't, it took you to 10 p.m. to notice your kid was gone. Like, it's alarming. Yeah. No, I mean, I hadn't like forgotten about it necessarily, but I I hadn't thought about it in so long. And when I saw it, it was so like jarring. I was like, I remember this exactly. Because it was sort of, it was really scary because they don't really give you any explanation. That's all it says. <laughs> That's all it says. And the one I saw was like Cliff Robertson or something, like that old actor. Uh, it was really scary. Desi, that's the whole PSA. I know. That's why it's so disturbing. It's, it literally, it's like, it's, it's like so cryptic. It's like a seconds. horror movie. Like, do you know where the children are? If baby shoes for sale, never worn is the saddest short story, this is the scariest short story. It's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? 10 p.m. Not 5 p.m. No. 10 p.m. Where the fuck are they, Shelly? There's a million questions here. So now when detectives start interviewing Jenner's Jennifer's Upper East Side friends, one name kept popping up, and that was Robert Chambers, who was 19 at the time. Sounds like a rich asshole. You know what, Rachel? You're dead on. He is a rich ass, or he appears to be a rich asshole. I mean, he is an asshole. <laughs> uh, they went to visit Robert Chambers just as a potential eyewitness and as one of her friends. But when he came out to be interviewed, the hairs on the back of their necks stood up. The moment they saw him, he became a person of interest. And that is because he walked out of his room with deep, fresh scratches all over <gasps> his face. 
Detectives kept their cool and they let Robert offer up to help in any way he could. They asked him if he would be willing to come down to the precinct and he immediately agreed, even grabbed his Philofax full of names and numbers to, to help out. Oh, the Philofax. <laughs> the Philofax. Here's the thing about the Philofax. By the time I became an adult, Obviously, it had been like a decade since anyone used one of those fucking things. I know. I remember buying one when it was already obsolete. Yeah. And I was like, I had always wanted one. Of course. <laughs> and I was like, I think I just bought it and I like never used it. And I got an expensive one at like Macy's in, in, in New York City. Uh, anyway. Now, Robert Chambers, as Rachel speculated, is the classic classic rich dick look. He looks like he could be friends with Steph and Blaine from Pretty in Pink. Like he looks like that. Not my type, but everyone describes him as handsome in this documentary and in the news and throughout the media. That was the whole thing. He is fucking hot. Um, he has like that Kennedy-esque prep school, prep school boy type thing going. When Robert gets to the precinct, he meets the lead detective, Mike Sheehan, who immediately notices his right hand is damaged. He describes the injury as like a classic boxer's injury. It's basically an impact fracture, fracture on one of his like middle knuckles. Now, Chambers is very relaxed and confident. He's, he's doing this interview. It's on tape. You can, it's in the documentary, but I think you can even just find it online. Uh, he is wearing a white Izod polo shirt, oh, by the way. <laughs> Rachel. Now, I found this detail to be particularly like unbelievable. At some point, Sheehan asks Robert about the scratches on his face. Like, hey, what happened to your face? Robert says he threw his cat up in the air and <gasps> it scratched him all over. Why did he throw his cat up <laughs> in the air? I don't know. But why would you ever? That's not something you do as a cat owner. I'm no, sorry. No. He then tells Sheehan, if you think that's bad, looks, look at this. Lifts his white eyes on uh, polo shirt up, fresh scratches all over his torso. <gasps> Now, Chambers... He needs to get rid of that cat. <laughs> Seriously. I don't trust this man. Chambers' initial story is that the two of them said goodnight in front of Dorian's and that that was the last he saw of her. A couple of hours later, Chambers is more arrogant and annoyed and getting irritated by the nonstop questioning. She and asks him to go over the story one more time, and Chambers says to him, pay attention. <gasps> this guy... Is fucking arrogant. This guy has no fear of authority because he's been told yes his whole life. Exactly. Now, this time he starts telling the story and it's slightly different, but in a major fucking way. He now says he and Jennifer left Dorian's and walked up 86th Street towards Central Park. So obviously the detective is like, <gasps> like this is like record scratch. Uh, now, at some point, Chambers' demeanor changes completely. He's not so cocky anymore. According to Sheehan, he says, what's mother going to say? And his eyes start to tear up. They're always worried about mother. Mother. <laughs> like, he literally calls her mother. Now, at this point, Sheehan calls the Manhattan District, District, District Attorney, and he comes down. Chambers agrees to make a videotape statement, and they basically put the camera on and let him talk. He starts off telling about his time at Dorian's where Jennifer was bugging him and just wouldn't leave him alone. He claims he wasn't interested in her, but at some point he agrees to take a walk with her and they leave Dorian's. When they got to Central Park, she said she wanted to talk some more in the park and he said he wanted to go home. He, he makes a big deal about constantly saying how uninterested he was in her. He doesn't go home, though. They enter Central Park, and even though he continues to say he's not interested in her, she gets him to sit down by a tree and talk some more. At that point, he says he told Jennifer he was not into her anymore and that he was seeing other people. He says that she became so enraged, she got up and scratched him all across his face. At that point, he tells her he is leaving, and she apologizes profusely and asks him to stay. So he does. He then says she ran off to go to the bathroom like in the bushes and he sat by the tree waiting for her. Then according to Chambers, she comes back up behind him and starts massaging him from behind, says how cute he looks and that he would look even cuter if he was tied up. Now, Chambers claims that she scooped his arms and put them behind him and wrapped his wrist with her underwear. He then says she pushed him on his back and straddled his chest, facing his feet, and began taking his pants off and started jerking him off. 
Chambers said it was hurting him and he asked her to stop and she cackled before turning around and digging her nails into his chest. Chambers said he was screaming in pain now and he somehow managed to loosen his left hand free and kind of clotheslined her off of him, like hit her in the neck with his arm to get him off of her. She kind of rolls off of him and then tumbles uh, to this tree that's next to them. Then he said she didn't move. Another unbelievable thing is that Chambers goes on to say that when police arrived the next, that early that morning, he was there watching what? them as they uh, looked over the crime scene. Like he tells them that he's like, I was there watching from across the street. So he's claiming that he pushed her off of him because he asked her to stop and that she rolled and hit a tree. He didn't even say she hit the tree. Okay, that's even more stupid. So she it's very stupid. So she rolled and died. Yeah, basically. He hit her in such a way that it strangled her. And he wasn't, and because it... Look, you're not going to make sense no, of it. No, I know. I'm just saying, I'm just trying to clarify what he's telling me. He literally police. says that he knocked her off of him, and that's how she got strangled. Right, and he was so worried about her, he didn't call the police. Exactly. Or ambulance. Or anything. Whatever. Yeah. Now, Or even try to do mouth-to-mouth. Anything. Like, nothing. I just mean anything. Yeah, nothing. Now, obviously, the people listening to this story are immediately like, this is bullshit. I mean, I, they go into it in the documentary, but I'll just say here, like, it's very... It doesn't take very long to make someone unconscious from strangling them. Like that's seconds or like, I don't know how many seconds, but if you hit the, whatever that artery, you can knock someone out very quickly, but that doesn't kill them. But to kill them, it takes minutes to kill them. It takes minutes. So there's no way. And her neck marks are not like a one lump. There's marks all over her neck. Like it's bullshit. Now the cops basically call him on that. They're like, they're like, you're six foot three, 190 pounds, and you couldn't stop this woman from attacking you or get her off of you in any other way. Like you were completely helpless, tied here. They just start going after him. He is like basically claiming she was raping him, like she was sexually assaulting him. He's like, she was jerking me off. She was squeezing my bars, my balls. I was helpless there, tied up with her underwear. Like he couldn't rip out of these underwear. <laughs> Chambers starts telling them like rape statistics for men, like men are raped all the time by women. Like he starts saying that kind of stuff to them, sort of trying to school these, these detectives on that particular aspect of the crime. He said that Jennifer told her friend she was definitely going to fuck him that night and she wouldn't take no for an answer. Wow. I mean, the whole thing is fucking sick. Now, just to give you an idea of his arrogance, when the tape statement ends, Robert asked the cops if they're finished with him and the detective is like, Bitch, you're under arrest for murder. <laughs> like, you're not wa- like we're not just suspicious. You literally just told us you killed her. Right. Like, like he thinks he's just leaving. Like, am I done here? <laughs> uh, no. Now, at this point, people know that this guy is the suspect, and the press are fucking losing their mind of because course. he's this good-looking rich kid. We're still in this part of the timeline and in history where people are like, rich people murder people? <laughs> like, why would anyone do that? They have it all. Like, it's right. like we know better now, obviously. Now, the press are all over this. They're swarming the suspect at his booking. Uh, this is just tailor-made for a tabloid father. fodder. As I mentioned, this rich, good-looking kid had everything, murders a young woman during rough sex. Like, it just has every element that people are going to fucking make hay of. People love rich kid gone bad stuff. Um, he gets booked in his white eyes eyed shirt and sent to Rikers Island, where he uh, is taunted by inmates. Good, Right rightfully so. <laughs> hey, they throw. They have. They need some fun every yeah, once in a while. Throw on. a rich dick in there. Now, at this point, Chambers' dad hires him a lawyer named Jack Littman. He's one of the best criminal defense attorneys around at the time. One of his notable characteristics, though, is that he will do anything to get his clients off, and he has zero problem attacking the victims of crimes in order to defend his client. As soon as Jack came on, the headlines began focusing on the rough sex angle, making it look like Chambers was the victim of Jennifer Levin. Wow. All of this is planted and put forward by Jack Lippman, and the seeds of doubt 
are being planted. Like there's interviews with people on the street in this documentary where they're like, I don't know. Like, it sounds like, (gasps) it sounds like an accident. Like they're already starting to buy into this, like stuff that's being put forward by the tabloids and Jack Littman. Ellen Levin, Jennifer's mom says in the doc that she hates Jack Littman as much as she hates Robert Chambers. Um, She says that Chambers killed her daughter and Littman killed her daughter's reputation. Now, The case is dubbed at this point the preppy murder by the tabloids. Now, not only is Jennifer being torn down, Chambers is being built up as a good guy and capable of doing such a thing. It had been an accident. He um, was an altar boy, like, you know, all of this kind of stuff. I, I just put this random note down because they're interviewing all these people that mutual friends from that time period. And there's this one woman named Margot Manhattan. Are you kidding me? I'm not kidding. I don't know. I don't know what the deal was, but I was like, I just wrote Margot Manhattan, LOL. (laughs) It just sounds like a real housewife or something like all of these old, all of these people now they're like middle age or like in their fifties, they all look like they're on real housewives. Like, Oh yeah. Um, now according to Jen's best friend, uh, her name is shit. Jessica Doyle, Jennifer and Robert, had been dating. She said she introduced them at a Valentine's Day party earlier that year, and um, they were kind of dating that summer, which contradicts what Robert claims. This friend also said Jen told her that her her uh, sex with Robert was the best sex she had ever had. So this was obviously not Robert. Go get off of me. I'm not interested. Right. They were they were sex, having sex. They weren't a boyfriend and girlfriend, but they were hanging out and everyone was like, they liked each other. Like they had fun together. Right. This wasn't like she was coming. And she wasn't like madly in love with him either. She was leaving for college. Like it was just like a fling. Like a, But he was telling the acting, telling the police like, oh, she's coming on to me for the first time. I don't know if he said the first time, but he made it seem like she was an annoying girl who was always. That's what I yeah, mean. definitely. Now at this point, because the, the assistant DA had recorded that video with Robert. He couldn't be on the case because he would be called as a witness at some point. So they put a new assistant DA on the case, and that is a woman named Linda Farstein. Now, I'm going to do a side note here. This is the same prosecutor who was pretty widely criticized for her handling of the Central Park Five case. That's the Central Park jogger rape case that happened about three years after the Jennifer Levin murder. I'm not going to go into that a a lot right now or at all right now, but I just figured that's, you'd want to know that that's the same woman and maybe we'll cover that case at some point because there was a big movie on it. Now, uh, she had never tried a murder case before and the original assistant DA who would have taken the case if he wasn't a witness was kind of irritated about it. They always have those little things like, I got taken off the case and I'm still bitter (laughs) about it. Um, So now detectives interview a I mean, she's not even a woman. She's a girl. She's 16-year-old Alex Cap. This is Chambers' official girlfriend. Like, what? Yeah. Well, how old is he? He's, like he's 19. She's 16. Now, she's all gaga about him because even though that's a small age difference, it's a big age difference in many ways. Like, he was like an adult. He was like, she describes him as being like a man. Like, she's she's used to dating these like younger boys. This was like a 19-year-old man, much more mature than her. Um. That was the person he was meeting at Dorian's that night. Chambers um, had set up a meeting with Alex Cap at 8 p.m. He waltzed in at 11.30 p.m. Um, she's furious. Like, So this is a 16-year-old girl, by the way, at Dorian's bar. They literally did not ID anybody. Jennifer was there alone because the friend she came with, Alex Legata, had gone home with some guy she met that night. So at this point, Alex Cap is just sitting there fuming, Chambers is basically ignoring her. Like he's the type of guy who shows up three hours late and, and then ignores her. Ugh. So she goes over to this group of friends he's hanging out with and ignoring her with. Jennifer's sort of nearby seeing this scene. She takes out a handful of condoms and throws them at Robert Chambers and says, Why don't you take these and use them on someone else? Because you ain't using them on me. Everyone in the bar fucking loses their shit laughing at Robert Chambers getting owned. <laughs> Good. <laughs> And Jennifer is also like there laughing at him, but Robert is not laughing and he feels fucking humiliated in that moment. You know exactly what type of guy this guy is, is like if he's emasculated in this bit. Yeah. So the defense really um, pursues her interest in, in him 
and like uses it against her. The victim shaming really starts hardcore at this point. Not only um, that, but the awful trope that the good looking guy could never would never have to hurt a woman to get her to fuck him, like Jesus. that kind of stuff. So it's like every fucking bad thing that can happen happens. Um, there's also the feeling among the prosecutors and detectives that what they initially thought was a slam dunk case starts seeming more iffy as this media bashing of Jen's character sort of escalates. This is so awful. It's really bad. Now, prosecutors realized that they had to start showing who the real Robert Chambers was, and they took his filofax and started making calls. They had his filofax, so they just, like in the in the documentary, she's like, we used to be like, okay, you have we have to call three people every day amongst the whole team. So they were just calling everyone in his filofax. Like, tell us about this Yeah, guy. and a lot of people were like, I don't have anything to say. Like, he's a great guy. I'm staying out of it, that kind of shit. Now, they finally get some breaks. Robert Chambers was definitely not who he appeared to be. Prosecutors at this point were desperate to find something on him because his bail hearing was coming up and they kind of didn't want this guy walking on the streets while he was awaiting trial. So they were hoping to come up with some stuff. They quickly discovered that Chambers was not as rich as he seemed. His mom was a nurse for the wealthy elite and wanted her son to be part of that world. She made sure he was on that path. She was a devout Catholic and he was an altar boy. She used her connections to let like to sign to get him into this world he became a mi- member of something called the Knickerbocker Grays which was like this snooty fucking prep sco- school like club you know one of those bullshit fucking rich things <laughs> <laughs> um he was also getting into these like elite like prep prep schools, private schools. Um, But he's troubled. He is constantly kicked out of these private schools, one time for stealing a teacher's wallet. He eventually ends up at York Prep, where he was a really bad student. Like, I saw his report card. (laughs) It's literally like Ds and Es. Like, they have Es. I guess that's lower than a D. And Fs. Um, His school records described him as lazy and not on the path to graduate. So, like us. No, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, when you were saying that, I was like, hey, that sounds like my report card. Um, look, you could have those grades and report card and not be a bad person. Yeah. He's just trying to present something he's not. Yeah. Now, he was not a golden boy. He was not rich. He was under a lot of pressure to be who his mom wanted him to be. They finally contacted a friend who was very defensive of Chambers initially. Then they showed him the autopsy photos of Jennifer Levin. And it was at that point the friend realized there was no fucking way this was an accident. He completely changed his demeanor. Now, at that point, more friends began to kind of crack and admit to these things about Robert. Um presenting this other side, namely about robberies that were happening at these rich kid parties when parents were out of town. Robert would go to these parties and steal fur coats and jewelry like during the parties. Um, you know, he stole he's going, <laughs> yeah, he's like stealing from these rich kids at these parties he's going to. And there's literally parties like multiple times a week. He would even climb down fire escapes in these like Park Avenue apartments and rob other people's apartments that like live below the families and stuff like that. People described him as feeling like he was entitled to it. Uh, And I bet you like growing up and being surrounded by all these people who have way more than you, if you're the right type of sociopath, you probably are like, why do they have this shit? I'm smarter and I'm better and I deserve. Do you know what I mean? Like, you could just picture him feeling entitled to having this shit. One wild story from the documentary is at some point, Chambers goes on a date with this girl. And while he's like picking her up from her, her like apartment, he somehow manages to steal an American Express car from the mom. Like he finds her wallet (laughs) on the table and the mom is like, ooh, what a handsome young... Like the mom is all impressed with her daughter finding this good looking guy. Then she gets a call from an American Express. They describe the person using it and she's like, that's Robert Chambers because she... He was like, he's 6'4", dark hair, very good looking. Like the... How many times you hear that he's good looking is infuriating, but like whatever. So he takes this American Express car or had taken this American Express car, used it to rent a limo with his friend and went on a shopping spree... (laughs) They sp- <laughs> that is so tacky. It's so tacky. Did they hang out of the sunroof? They're literally like in this like montage in the documentary. It's like they're passing Bloomingdale's and like Tiffany's Ugh. and like whatever. Now the son, this person he's hanging out with is a rich kid doing this. His dad is like the president of Cartier. So in the documentary, um, this mom tells this story. The, you know, Robert's mom calls and she's like, oh, he's he's on drugs. I'm going to put him in rehab. I'm so sorry. Like she's apologetic, making excuses. The woman's like, fine, I won't call the cops. Just reimburse me 
the three thousand. It was like over three thousand dollars. How is his mom going to afford that? Well, she doesn't know. Yeah. Also, fuck. She doesn't care. Like she wants her money back, right? right? So she gets a check for the amount that was spent, and it's from the dad of the rich kid guy, not from Robert's family. So the other kid's dad pays the three thousand dollars back. So once again, Robert is not facing consequences at all for his behavior. So, like, he didn't have to get a summer job to. No, he didn't. The dad just paid for it. Right. The rich kid's dad. Right. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This becomes common knowledge about Robert, but no one cares. They're literally like, yeah, Robert steals from our parents, but they're literally so drunk and partying that no one fucking cares. There's a real error at least from the clips I saw in the documentary of people like just being like, we're partying. It's the (laughs) eighties. We're all having fun. Like who cares? Like it's just wild. Now, as I mentioned, he says that he, the mom says that he has a drug problem. That's absolutely true. Robert Chambers has a big fucking major drug problem. He has been addicted to drugs since the age of 14. In fact, everyone in this group is doing a lot of drugs. It's not just him, but he has a particularly bad problem. He's been in and out of rehabs since the age of 14, never successful. Like he literally walks out of them and just never finishes the treatment programs. Um, Cocaine is the fave of the group and, and particularly for Chambers. He fucking loves cocaine. And the robberies are basically to pay for this habit. That's why he's stealing. Now, in the documentary, um, Alex Cap, the girlfriend, the one who threw the condoms at him, she also tells a story about how the night before she threw the condoms at him and Dorian's, she had him over in her house and he wanted to borrow money. And she said, oh, I have $5 in my wallet. Her parents had were out of town. So they left her $50 for the weekend. And when she checked her wallet, the five and the 50 were both gone. When she confronted him, he's like, I didn't take it. Like he like lied to her face. So that's why she wanted to meet him at 8 PM the next day to kind of confront him about stealing money from her. Um, So he just would steal from his friends and even and like lie to their fucking face. Now, looking back, this girl, Alex Cap said she feels like He was really spiraling those last few months before the murder. And then she said she has a lot of guilt um, for two reasons. She feels guilty that her like behavior was what made him snap that night, like starting that thing with the condom things. And she also feels guilty for feeling relieved that it could have been her. Like she just wasn't like the one who she like left. Do you know what I mean? So he like left with Jennifer. He was, I mean, look, he was going to take out. His rage eventually. Yeah, I think that's what someone in the documentary said. They're like, he didn't kill that night because he was mad. He killed because he's a killer and he would have done it uh, eventually. Now, prosecutors are shocked at this point. They're like in the process of this bail bail hearing. All of a sudden, the Archbishop of Newark, a man named Theodore McCarrick, sends a letter to the judge declaring Robert Chambers basically to be a good boy. Oh, like So he has like this big, huge name in the Catholic archdiocese well we all know (laughs) look back then it meant something (laughs) and there's a wild story coming later but yeah like that was like very powerful back then it was like oh well the archbishop says he's like safe to release for trial and who are we not to trust the catholic yeah exactly and guess what he's granted bail it's about a hundred and fifty thousand dollars the family obviously has no money to pay it Catholic church members basically raise the money and free, he gets freed on bail. One person, like, whatever, mortgages his house to oh get this bail money. Because the mom is, like, really active in the Catholic church. I, I have no idea, but that that's what happened. Basically, the Catholic church gets Those church motherfuckers gets are powerful, out. Desi. Seriously. Now, now he's out. The rehabilitation campaign for him begins in earnest, like, now it's like, yeah, we're taking Jennifer down, but we're also going to make this guy look like a fucking hero or an angel or whatever. He's like walking around the city. There's a picture of him out on bail where he's walking around because I think he initially he lived in like a rectory, a Catholic 
church like rectory when he was first out and he's walking out of the rectory with a Walkman on. (laughs) So everyone's just furious that this asshole is just living life like, hey, not on bail. (laughs) Now he goes back to living with his mom again and his girlfriend, Alex Cap, comes to visit him. Now I I mentioned she was sort of uh, still on his side or defending him at this point, uh, you know, saying it was an accident. She uh, goes to this meeting. They go to her his room and start playing Mad Libs. <laughs> I'm sorry. And at some point, she notices a stack of newspapers under a table in his room that have him on the front cover, just stacks and stacks and Ew. stacks of all the nas- newspapers with his, him on the cover. And she said that she just got like this really fucking sense of like, I need to get out of here. Like, fe- like fearing for her life almost because she realized that he fucking loved the notoriety. Like he was into it. Of course. Uh, she said she was like chilled to her core basically and she made an excuse to get out of there and never saw him again. That is like the biggest red flag I've ever heard of. Yeah, he's just a gross guy. Now, shortly after Robert is re- released on bail, Linda Fairstein gets a call from a detective with some more explosive news about Robert. The detective said... I'm sorry. The detective tells her that the previous year she was investigating a burglary, a felony amount, amount of like $70,000 was burgled or burgles. um, And that Chambers driver's license was found on the fire escape. Now the detective called him in at the time and and basically bought his story. He's like, oh, I have a friend in that building. I must've dropped my license. She even says like, I kind of fell for it because he was so charming and handsome. (laughs) It's just like, what guy is that hot? Like, I'm glad we live in a world where we know that most men are all fucking shit. <laughs> like, like, they were still like, oh, he's so handsome. <laughs> like, well, I think, I think as a whole, hopefully I'd like to think we're a little more savvy than we were in the 80s. Yes. Uh, sometimes it is good to see things like this because you kind of feel like things never change. So when you see something like from 30 years ago, you're like, okay, we've done a little bit of improvement. A little bit. There's like a smidge. Yeah. I don't know if I'm hopeful, but like there is something like it's not, Things like this still happen, though, for sure. But yeah. Now, I feel like there's more people who know it's bad. That's sort of where we're at. I think that's what I'm saying. I feel like people in the general public are a little more savvy, maybe. Yeah, they still do slut shaming and stuff like that. But more people are like, that's wrong. (laughs) (laughs) At least we have people who say it's wrong. Yes. So at this point, obviously now he's like, you know, on bail for murder. So the te- so they're like, well, maybe we should look more into this driver's license thing. They like go into like the evidence. They had taken fingerprints and they matched chambers. So he was responsible for this $70,000 uh, burglary. What the fuck did he steal? <sighs> a VCR? Well, now he had a partner in these crimes. It was a man named David Filia, who was also a pretty bad guy. He, um, at some point after this burglary thing or and I can't remember exactly when but eventually he is also arrested for raping and an attempted murder on a young Columbia student so these two had a scheme basically what they would do David Filia is black Robert Chambers is white and had connections to this world Chambers would get access to the buildings because the doorman would be like oh I recognize that guy so he would go into the building get into the apartment somehow get stuff jewelry furs whatever Go to the fire escape where David Filia would be waiting below, and he would basically drop the <laughs> shit down to David Filia waiting below. That is like a cartoon. Yeah, that was like their their scheme. Like, and then now, like once they figured this out, they investigated like similar bur- burglaries and found thirty two bur- burglaries that matched like this type of burglary. So that's how many they probably did. Like they were doing this a fucking lot. Wow. He gets indicted on these. Now, during this period now, Robert's indicted on these burglaries. So, you know, now Littman's pissed because his client's being dirty <laughs> by the press. Uh, so he is trying to, like, you know, take the news off of these burglaries that Robert is indicted for. And he gets a New York Magazine writer to write a profile on Robert Chambers. You're joking me. No. Now, this article... I didn't read the article. I read some of it and I saw the cover. The cover picture is not to be believed. He's basically in a suit looking fucking sharp and handsome and lit like a model. This is like (laughs) how nowadays they do these glowing profiles of neo-Nazis. Oh yeah, totally. It's like the same energy. It's exactly like if you looked at this picture, you would be like, you would not think this is a man on trial for murder or almost on trial for murder. He looks like whatever, model-esque, like he's posed that way, he's lit that way. Uh, it's, it's not like 
on trial for murder. It's like, you know, behind, you know, the real Robert Chambers. I can't remember what the title was. Um, It's also lots of fucked up shit about Jennifer in this article. Like, oh, she was from a broken home. Like this kind of stuff. And the funny thing is, Robert Chambers' parents were technically married, but they didn't, they hated each other, but the mom was like a devout Catholic, so she refused to get divorced. So they were basically divorced, but not Catholic. They were Catholic, so they weren't. Um, So at this point, the the um, sorry attorney Littman also leaks a story that Jennifer had a secret sex diary. Stop it! And that becomes like headline news. Like they sue the parents to get the sex diary. <gasps> the parents are like, there is no sex diary. Like it was like a basically like a filofax or a date a day planner like a calendar. There was no sex in it. It was just it was just like a fucking stunt. Like there was no right. calendar. But once you put that. Oh, yeah. Then it was the biggest story. Like, what's in the sex diary? Like, it's kind of like those stories where, like, the black book, like, the madams have all the names and stuff like that. But once you even just put that out into the ether, out into the press, people people take that as gospel. Well, no one knows that it wasn't really true. Right. It's just you hear the sex diary and they want to believe it. Of course. Now, activists do start coming out at this point, but it is pretty sad. Like, I saw some of the protests where it's, like, justice for Jennifer, like, people being against the slut shaming. And it's, like, 10 people. I mean, it's so sad. Uh, And then the Guardian Angels, who are, like, a group, like, a vigilante group from back in the day. I think they still exist, but I don't even, I don't think they're good. Uh, they also are supporting Jennifer during this period. Um, so yeah, I mean, she has some support start, start starting, but it's very small. Now, meanwhile, the prosecutors and detectives are trying to pin down exactly how Jennifer was killed. Like they have, it's all circumstantial evidence. They like, they're desperate to find like a motive or like the murder weapon or something. Uh, they, they kind of, discover there's some blood marks on this jean jacket she was wearing that night and that becomes their focus because it had blood on it um and the only place that she was bleeding from was her mouth they speculate that he had used the jean jacket to like cover her mouth while he was strangling her or to stop her from screaming or something and that the ridges and all the red marks on her neck were because that rough material was sort of rubbing on her as he was strangling her or stopping her from breathing like just the whole process so they really needed to prove that the blood was hers. Now, this is 1986, and DNA evidence is not something that is used at this point. It has never been used in a criminal case before, but it is starting to be developed. So they send this jacket. They don't even send it. They hand deliver this jacket to Quantico, um, and they prove that the blood and saliva on the jacket was Jennifer's, but the judge, whose name is Bell, Judge Bell, he declared DNA evidence um, DNA evidence unreliable and therefore inadmissible um, at the time. This was during the preliminary he- preliminary hearing. They also um, wanted to say that he had uh, stolen the jewelry, um, but like, there's like so many things that they're not allowed to bring in. Like, basically, everything that makes Robert Chambers look bad is inadmissible. Now the press starts turning on the judge. His name is Judge Bell. They start calling him Ding Dong Bell. Like that's his <laughs> name. That's his name in the press. Because he's literally ruling against the prosecutors like nonstop. Everything, like in a circumstantial case, if you can't put in these things like that make the defendant look bad, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like there's nothing. Like, well, there's nothing like that speaks to his character you can't put in. But everything is admissible about the victim. That's right. Yeah. Of course. And it's just like a frustrating uh thing. Now Jury selection begins in September of 1987. This goes on for months. Like, first of all, the prosecution is like immediately suspicious because a lot of people are like, I've never heard of this case. And it's like, really? Like, how could you not have? It's literally in the news every single day. So it's like people are trying to get on the jury. Uh, it's like a really difficult process to, to put this jury in place. They have to take this trial to Montana. Yeah. Well, they don't. Like, it's like, I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's like a really difficult jury selection process because it takes months. Now, another big dilemma for the prosecution is they don't have a motive. Like, they don't really have a strong motive. They come up with multiple theories that they are trying to, like, debate what to present. They basically believe that at some point he gets enraged when everyone's laughing at him at the bar. And because he's, like, whatever, he's been spiraling out of control the last few months. He's like a cocaine addict. All of these kind of things add up to him being like volatile. I mean, I, I'm sure you know this and I've been around men who are cocaine addict as a kid. 
And if they're violent, that's a really bad combination. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying anything breaking here. No. That's a bad combination. Look, I lived with, yeah. I lived with my cocaine dealer, and it was not a great time. Right. So they think that at some point, and Jennifer was sort of like, her sister said in the documentary that the one time she spoke to Jennifer about Robert, Jennifer was like, oh, like he's like a wounded animal, like. I really, she felt like she had to save him. Like there was definitely like that kind of thing where she's like, oh, he loves talking to me. I feel bad for him. Like that kind of thing. So, so they speculate that at some point Jennifer may have said something to him about his drug habit and written further enraged him. And he struck her. Like that was the first blow, that punch where her eye was uh, blackened and her teeth were loose. I mean, regardless of what it was, this is the, like we said before, this is the type of guy who was going to do this eventually. Right. But my point is they wanted to have a reason why it happened. So they're like speculating and that's sort of what they think possibly happened, that it escalated after he hit her because she started fighting him maybe. Right. And he was just on that path, like you said. They also said that he robbed her of her jewelry because he was a fucking thief and probably sold her fucking rings and jewelry and earrings. Like she had like a rhinestone or cubic zirconia earrings. So he probably thought they were diamonds and took them. They had to actually like cover up because I told you there was like tan marks where you could tell the jewelry was. She had the earrings on at her, the last photo taken of her at that bar. They have a picture from that night. She had the earrings on. So they cover up the earrings with tape because they weren't allowed to show that the earrings were stolen. Stop it. Yes. like that, But that's part of the physical evidence. I know, but they weren't allowed to show that she had jewelry on. Like This is deranged. It's really deranged. Now, the trial finally begins 19 months after her murder, and it's like, it's one of the trial of the decade type trials. It's a big trial. It's national news. Um, the prosecutor makes an opening statement that's really trying to like humanize Jennifer and like showing people that this is a girl who was bubbly and full of life and this was taken away. She ends her opening statement with, um, don't make the same mistake Jennifer Levin did, don't trust the defendant, which I thought was like a really good end to an opening statement. It was during the trial that people noticed a young woman coming to the courthouse with Chambers. It was his girlfriend, Sean Covell. He gets a girlfriend during during this period, Rachel. Why do they always get girlfriends? <laughs> I have no idea. Like, it's awful. Now, you know, the, the jury, the courtroom has like the two sides. She has her side for the family. It's very like OJ. And then his family is on the other side. On his side is also very prominent figures from the Catholic church who are there to support them. So the jury is also seeing this, like, right. look at all these Catholic, Ooh, is that whatever priest? <laughs> so and so. I don't know. Like the Catholic church is, is that like the star who molested me. Right. Oh, wow. He has good, <laughs> he has good judgment. Um, <laughs> so he's the good Catholic boy with a loving girlfriend also there to support him. Like she, would she be with someone who was a killer? <laughs> We know now, yes. Um, he His strategy is basically, the defense attorney's strategy is basically like very similar to OJ, muddying the waters to the point where no one knows what's true. Like every witness has an, another expert witness who contradicts everything. Uh, they go after the police, you know, detectives, like they bungled the crime scene, all of this stuff, just like fucking throwing everything they can at the wall to see what sticks. Uh, the jury literally doesn't know what to think. They have a juror in the documentary who is anonymous. Like he's a, he doesn't want to reveal who he is because right. everyone hates the jury. Um, <laughs> so, uh, news flash, uh, foreshadowing. Prosecutors um, are really hoping that Chambers is going to testify, and it looks like he is because, of course, he's that type of sociopath who wants to like who thinks he can charm the jury. Of course, but. He doesn't. Littman pulls the plug on him testifying, and that really fucks up the prosecution's case because that was their opportunity to, to bring in other stuff that they weren't able to bring in as evidence. Like, if he testifies, then they can bring up those kind of questions. So they basically have nothing. They can't talk about the previous crimes, the robberies, the drug addiction, the DNA evidence. Like, anything really hard that they have is inadmissible. What's wild to me is... Where was the medical examiner during this to say this is clearly a s- deliberate strangulation? Well, that was another aspect because they they did have the thing and he like didn't notice that the teeth were loose. Like it was 
possibly bungled. Yeah. But they would also, even if that guy did say it, they'd bring in another medical expert to say, well, I don't know. It's possible. She had loose teeth. Yeah. It's possible she got hit in the neck and got strangled. <laughs> like they would have someone, you know, you can just buy these fucking witnesses. I don't right. even know how, how it exactly works. And it seems like fucked up that it should, that it can be that way. Right. You'd think it'd be a neutral fucking a scientific expert, and that's the end of it. Well, you can pay an expert witness, quote-unquote, to say whatever. Yeah, and there's a reason that certain people always seem to be for the defense, like, yeah, you know. Now, the jury goes into deliberations, and it, very quickly the prosecutors get fucking scared. It goes on day one, day two, day three. Like, they think this is an easy case. So the longer it goes on, the more sure that something fucked up is happening. And it is. The the jury's deliberate jury deliberates for nine days. And at that point, they tell the judge that they're hopelessly deadlocked eight to four, eight in favor of conviction, four in favor of acquittal. So at this point, the defense attorneys and the prosecutors both kind of don't want a hung jury. Uh, so the defense comes to the prosecutors with a deal. They talk it over with the Levins, like the family. And the Levins basically are like, we don't want to go through a second trial. We cannot handle this fucking going through this again. Yeah. So they agree to a plea deal. Robert Chambers pled guilty to first degree manslaughter and received five to 15 years in prison. Boy. He gets one night with his mom before turning himself into custody the next day, which I find unfucking believable yeah like why right why not take him in right away like so he gets this night like in at home before he goes to prison the next day disgusting yeah after he is put in prison like a few weeks later i think there's a show did you i don't know if this was a show across the country but in new york there was a show called current affair did you guys it was like a tabloid i know of that yeah it's like a tabloid show it was really big yeah. in New York, but I think it was national or maybe it was syndicated. I'm pretty sure. Anyway, the host of this show was a man named Steve Dunleavy. I think he's Australian. He gets a tape in the mail that was made on December 17th, 1987, showing Chambers. So this is like pre-trial, but he's out on bail. Uh, he It shows Chambers and a bunch of girls partying. Some of them are like in their underwear. They're in a bedroom partying and drinking, including his girlfriend, Sean Covell. In the video, Chambers picks up a Barbie doll and starts to twist her head saying, my name is, and as he says that, the head pops off and he goes, oops, I think I killed her. (gasps) And they're just like laughing it up. I mean, it's like a vile, vile tape. Like everyone's watching this and it's like, oh shit, we just let a psycho get away with murder. Like, because this happens after he's, he like pleads. Like, Oh my God. Yeah, it's so sick. So this was like, a major fucking bomb when this tape was really like this video was released. Everyone was like, what? Like crazy fucking thing, but nothing happens. And it might have made a difference if people had seen that. Cause obviously juries see things, right? Like, so he gets sentenced to five to 15 years, as I said, but Chambers is a piece of shit in jail. So he does end up serving the complete 15 years. He like has like 30 drug violations, he doesn't listen. He's in he's in like solitary confinement, like over a thousand days of his sentence because Whoa. of piece of shit moves. Like he's just like a bad. He's just as entitled in prison as anything else. He gets released on February fourteenth, two thousand and three. Within a year of being released, he was busted in a drug sting with his girlfriend Sean Covell, She's the ever loving Sean Covell. She's still she with waited him? for him all oh. those years, Rachel. What a loser. He gets out. They start a cocaine selling business out of their apartment uh, and get busted eventually. And it's a major deal. Now, Sean is like a mess at this point. You kind of feel bad for her. She's actually so bad off that they actually put her in rehab and she doesn't serve any time for this. But Robert gets 19 years in prison, which is more years than he got for killing Jennifer Levin, by the way. Wow. Uh, And his next parole hearing is in 2024 when he will be 58 years old. Now, here is the side note about that, that arch, um, sorry, what is it? Archbishop McCarrick or the Cardinal, Cardinal McCarrick, who defended Chambers. In 2018, Cardinal McCarrick resigns after being accused of a sexual relationship with a teenage boy. And then numerous other boys come or men now come forward saying that he 
fucked them or molested them as a child. And it's like a huge fucking Catholic church scandal. Um, the, the prosecutor and detective in the documentary speculate it's possible that Robert was also abused by this guy. Not that it excuses anything at all. Um, but he was an altar boy. His mom was like, I was even thinking when they were saying this, I was like, did she know and be like, Hey, give me a fucking letter. <laughs> I'm going to like drop a dime on all of you fucking like, cause why did this guy do this? Right. Like, I wonder if she knew and was like, I'll fucking tell everything unless you send this letter right now. Like, right. Oh, interesting. isn't that a wild story? Yeah. Now, obviously I'll talk about the song in a bit, but this case inspired a lot of different things. There's a song by Sonic Youth called Eliminator Jr. that was inspired by this case. The um, Preppy Murder, the movie I mentioned with William Baldwin and Lara Flynn Boyle. There is, of course, a Law and Order episode based on this case. Um, The character, a a character on Oz. I didn't watch Oz. Did you watch Oz? No, but it's stupid because I love Chris Maloney so much. I I keep wanting to watch it and I feel like it's a show I I would like. I know. um, But I I just haven't gotten around to it. A character is based on him and that. And in the novel American Psycho, Patrick Bateman... Uh, mentions trying to start a defense fund for Robert. So, of course, they would be uh, simpatico. Now, the song by the Killers is, um, it's about, it's basically from the point of view of a boy who is taken in for questioning about a girl's murder. Her name is Jenny. And it's like explaining the incident from his perspective. They said it was inspired by seeing that videotape confession of Robert Chambers that I talked about at the top of the episode And yeah, it's made the morning after the death of Jennifer Levin. And this was a part of their murder trilogy. They have three songs about the murder of a girl named Jenny. And there's two more. This is the one that was based on a true crime. I don't think the other two are. And yeah, that's that. (laughs) Wow, Desi. That's the case. (laughs) That was a lot. I mean, I knew about the preppy killer. It's a really good TV movie. I just didn't know like the details of the case or anything or how this woman that was murdered was so like slut shamed by the press and how her family was so re-traumatized over and over again. That's so awful. I mean, it's one of those things I think where you're like, I would never give up. I would want him dead. Like I would want him convicted, but then you're just like, I can't go through it. It doesn't matter anymore. Like, I mean, you understand why some families just do not want to go through a trial again. Yeah. It's hell probably. The mom is such a sympathetic character too. Like you just feel so, cause she was like, she talks about in the documentary how like her husband, her husband had remarried or her ex-husband had remarried and like her mom and dad had each other and she was kind of alone. Like, and her daughter, other daughter had like a boyfriend or a husband she was off with. So during this whole period, she was alone going to the trial every day by herself most of the time. Wow. Just like, awful. Yeah, really so awful. So sad. Wow, Des, that was, um, that was really well done episode. Thank you. So, <laughs> oh, by the way, this is another fun fact. Alex Cap, the girlfriend of Robert Chambers, is an actress and she was on that show with Julia Louis-Dreyfus, The New Adventures of Old Christine. Really? Yeah. And she was like at the Groundlings and she's oh like a God. comedic actress. Like she's not, she's like a working actress. Uh, she thought that was really weird. That's so random. Because <laughs> she mentions being an actress in the documentary and then I like looked up an article with her and I was like, they talked about her being on that show and I was like, wait, what? <laughs> she's actually like an IMDP page. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. So that was like weird too. So if you watch that show, I don't know what character she was on cool. or what she was, but yeah. So I have pictures. There's a lot of good pictures yeah, for this we'll one. We'll post some pictures this week. Um, yeah, that's right. that. Goodbye. Bye.